welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Okay, James 5, 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to tell us this morning. Lord, may we, may your Holy Spirit um, illuminate the scriptures for us, Lord, and may we leave here different than when we came in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome. So obviously today's a huge day. We've got two teams here, one from Carolina, one from Georgia. Um... <laughs> Jensen is leaving today. We've got um, all kinds of baptisms happening afterwards, which is amazing. Soccer night's happening this week, and I'm just trying to breathe. So, um, welcome. My name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here at Church at the Well. I'm excited that you're here. Um, we have been going through the book of James, and I'm just basically going to pick up right from where we left off. But for those of you who are new, the book of James is this attempt by James to put a mirror in front of each individual that's a believer. And the reason that this is so important is, like I've said every week, there's this tendency in human beings to look at things that are going wrong in our world, to look at things that are going wrong in our life, and to not look within. We want to basically kind of blame everybody else for everything that's going on. Um, We want to point fingers. We want to, even like sitting here today, there's going to be this temptation as I'm preaching And the Holy Spirit begins to convict a heart to go, man, I wish that so-and-so was here to hear this message. But the reality is the Lord has you here. And so James says, we basically need to put this mirror up so that we can see our own heart. And I tell you often, the most dangerous prayer I think you can pray is to allow the Lord to actually see what's going on in your heart because oftentimes what we see is not good. It's difficult. And so, last week we looked at this idea of money. I know it was everybody's favorite thing. James talked about money, and um, it was basically coupled around this idea of pride, that the real root of most of the reason that we won't put the mirror up in front of us and deal with our own hearts is because we're such prideful individuals. And so the book of James has been talking about the different areas of pride, and now we get to this passage, and frankly, if you're new or you're kind of experienced, you haven't been in church world ever, or maybe you're just coming back, when we begin this passage, it almost seems a little insensitive. And so I'm gonna challenge you on this a little bit. And so if you haven't turned there already, turn to James chapter 5. Beginning in verse 7, it begins this way. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I, I was thinking this week about all of the stuff. Like, I use this analogy a lot because it seems like it's in my face every single day. But when you drive in Boston, it's really hard. 
right? I, don't, I think drivers are getting worse. I'm convinced of it. I just don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, it's really bad, right? And so when you're, when you're constantly attempting to drive in a city like Boston and there's a mess and things are going on, I'm not always patient, right? Some, the other day, I think I told you, like, I actually stepped out of my car and started yelling at somebody and I was like, wait, pastor, I'm a pastor. I can't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> immediate regret, right? I, um, this idea of, of, of knowing that something as simple as driving, and then you look at our world and go, it's just a mess. I haven't met anybody in a while that isn't like, man, it just seems like everything's crumbling around us and things are hard. And once again, I tell you every week, we, we have an answer for that. We live in a sin-cursed world, sin-cursed bodies. And even knowing that theologically and, and the truth of that from scripture, it still can feel a little bit insensitive when we're processing the difficulties of the world for scripture to just go, well, just be patient. Um, I remember growing up and my dad would say that to me and I'm like, I don't wanna be patient. Patience is difficult. In fact, if you've grown up in church world, you know that oftentimes, I remember as a youth, my youth pastor used to say, don't, don't ever pray for patience. Don't ever pray for patience. Don't ever pray for patience. And I'm like, scripture's saying we're constantly needing to be patient. Why wouldn't we pray for patience? Because the only way to achieve patience is for God to put you in situations that require it. And so when you begin praying for something like patience, you know what's coming. No different than if you say, Lord, I wanna be a more loving individual, and you start praying that he'll help you be more loving, what's he gonna do? He's gonna put people in your life that are really difficult to love, so you can practice it. Patience is one of those things where it's just, it feels like nothing's really happening. Just, oh, be patient. Things will work out. When we look at the world around us, we look at our own hearts, and we look at, a lot of what James has taken us through to this point, the idea of being patient is difficult because patience is passive. It's, it's this idea of kind of forbearing, right? And it's, it doesn't remove suffering, it doesn't, it doesn't even help us focus on it differently. It's just basically saying, suffering's occurring and you need to just get through it. And that's hard to think about. In fact, it almost becomes more insensitive in some ways because the analogy he gives here as he keeps, as we keep reading brothers is just be patient to the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So here, here's your solution. Just be patient. Is that okay with everybody? Here's the thing about patience. I don't think it's possible to be patient unless there's hope of something changing. So oftentimes, I mean, I don't know, so I'm getting older and I've gone through all kinds of you know, things and scenarios and I've had moments like Paul where I go, I know what it's like to have nothing and I know what it's like to have plenty and everybody's kind of experienced that if you're young, maybe not yet. But there's these things when you know, like, you, uh, just as an example, maybe you owe somebody some money, and you're like, okay, I know I need to pay this money, I know I need to pay this money. 
it's really dis- disturbing when you know that you need to pay somebody something and you don't see the income coming in in the future, right? College debt's a massive thing right now, right? And so I'm like, man, so many college students are coming out with so much debt, and it says statistically that the jobs they're going to get are probably not going to be able to help them pay off those college loans. And you go, man, that's, that's hard to process through. Where's the hope? But when you owe somebody money and you know, man, there's a windfall coming soon, I've got this new job happening and there's more money that's gonna come in or hey, this person owes me money and as soon as that's paid and they said they're gonna pay me, I'll be able to pay this and you're able to put your hope in something that you know is going to help make a change, patience is easier. So I think what we have to understand, and James is eventually gonna get here, is that in order for us to be patient, we have to be able to place our hope in something. So really, the success or the ability for us to be patient is really going to be grounded in what we're putting our hope and trust in. There have been a lot of times, and you have experienced this as well, where you've put your hope and trust and faith in something and been patient for and it's let you down. Um, if you know me very long, eventually I will let you down. Right, I, I tell people all the time, like you, the worst thing you can do is put faith and trust and hope and patience in your pastor without Jesus, right? Because there's gonna come a point where I'll disappoint you or do something. And, If you think the solution is, well, someday I'll get married, well, your spouse will eventually disappoint you as well. People disappoint you. Your best friend will. So when we're thinking about, just from a human perspective, this idea of somebody just going, well, just be patient, and be patient like the farmer who just sits and waits for the rain to come, and then the crops pop up, and you're like, that sounds all nice and great. But if I don't have anything to put my hope in, If there's no picture for change coming, it's really difficult to passively sit back and just wait. And I think, fortunately, James doesn't stop here. He's actually gonna give us something to put our hope and trust in. He's gonna give us an object that we can focus on in order for us to remain patient through the hardship, through the struggle. Practically, through those moments when we're looking in the mirror and what we're seeing, we're not liking. And we've all had these moments as well where you're going, man, when is this gonna change? Like, when is my heart gonna do something different? Why do I keep coming back to the same thing? Mankind has this ability to know what hurts us but continue to do it. We know what destroys us and we'll continue to go back to it. When is it gonna change? So let's just keep reading. Verse eight, you also be patient. So like the farmer, he's talking to the church. He's saying, we need to be patient. Know that things are difficult. I know that patience is passive. I know that it doesn't change anything right away. But you also need to be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's right here where he's going to give us the motivation that we need and the object of our hope so that we can remain patient. He says, look, 
I'm gonna go back to what the prophets used to say in the Old Testament. I'm gonna go back to what Jesus said while he was here on this earth, that this world is difficult, it's hard. I've often said we have such black and white truth, but we live in such a gray world, and oftentimes it's so hard to apply. But Jesus says, I'm coming back. This isn't your permanent home. The, the struggles that you're going through are the ramification of the choices that we make and the choices that we've made in the past and the fall and all of these things that have seen sin come into our world, but there's hope. There's, there's hope for the future when Jesus comes back and what James is saying is, in those moments when we're struggling to really grasp this ability to be patient, we need to place our hope in something that will never change. Something that's eternal, something that will never disappoint us, something that we can look at and gain encouragement from. But even that, for me, when I look at things that I go through or the suffering of this world and or maybe you're looking at somebody else and you're like, when, Lord? Like, when is that gonna go away? As much as I long, I mean, every day I'm praying, Lord, today's a great day to come back, right? Like, let's do it. And typically, I pray that harder when I'm not looking forward to a day, right? Probably you do as well. I don't wanna have this conversation, so just come on back. Um, but I pray every day, because we're, we're commanded to, Lord, come back. Come back and, and heal the broken land. But while he tarries, sometimes it's difficult to even place our hope into something that's going to come in the future, even though we know it's sure. And this is where things get really cool. Because we don't just have to look to the future, we can also look to the not so far past. When Jesus says that he was gonna come back, the reason that he said he was able to come back is because of what he did while he was here, right? So maybe if you haven't been in church world, you've heard this term, the gospel. Gospel just means good news. The gospel is that us, we, mankind, being in suffering and hurting and lost and with no hope whatsoever, he enters the world, he lives the perfect life that we were supposed to live, he dies the death that we deserve. Three days later, he rises from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. And then he says, if you'll believe in me, and me alone, if you'll put your faith and trust in what I've done and not what you do, if you'll just put your faith and trust in that good news, that gospel that Jesus loved you enough to come and live your life for you and die for you and raise for you, then you will be saved. And what does that mean? It means that he gives you new life. Scripture des describes this as like he takes your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. Or there's analogies where he says you're born again, which once again I know is weird language, but it's as if you have a new life in him. Or it says that you've been removed from darkness and into light. There's all these analogies that describe this beauty of the gospel and the hope that comes from it. And then that hope arises even greater when Jesus says things like, I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. That, that passage of scripture isn't written in the future, it's written in 
the present. It's from now until eternity. Meaning you have hope in Christ from the moment that you come to faith in him, you can see him as the object of your hope continually no matter what you're going through. We just sang about this. That nothing's impossible. All things are possible. That he lights it up. And so when James is talking about this idea of the object of our hope, he doesn't just insensitively say, look, just be patient. You know, it's passive. Just, just sit and wait and, and get through the suffering and just deal with it. Because Jesus is one day coming back. He said, no, let's, let's be reminded of everything that Jesus has done to this point and continues to do. He says, as you're going through this suffering, it's not just insensitive to say be patient. He's saying be patient because of Jesus. Be patient because Jesus has the ability to make your burden light. Be patient because you don't have to put your hope and trust in something that's going to disappoint you continuously. Be patient because he's in control of all things. Be, be patient because he's sovereign. Be, be patient because the, the God of the universe who created you also saved you and loves you and desires good for you. And when we look at the difficulties that we go through from that perspective, allowing us to put our hope in something that isn't us or another sin-cursed individual, or a system, it changes everything. There's this ability in us to say, the reason that I'm not able to be patient is because what I'm hoping in isn't strong enough. But Jesus is. So he says, establish your hearts. You also be patient, establish your hearts. Ground your hearts in the gospel. Right? It's, it's wrong to say that we don't suffer. In fact, Jesus said that we're going to suffer. He promised it. I, I'll go as far as to say, if you don't feel like you're suffering, there's probably something wrong. Right? Jesus said, I suffer, you're gonna suffer. When we process Jesus' life, it blows my mind to believe that whether you believe he's the son of God or not, I have never come across anyone in the world that has said, well, Jesus was a terrible person. Everybody, regardless of what you believe, it, it's okay, Jesus was there and obviously he was a good person and he did some good things and, and that's good. He, it's beyond that. He loved you so much that he doesn't leave us stuck. He loves us so much that he models the way that we're to behave. But then again, he also models that the most perfect being who ever walked the earth did nothing wrong, zero sin, according to scripture. The response to the world was what? You gotta die. So Jesus suffered. 
It doesn't matter how perfect you think you become. It doesn't matter how much you point the fingers at other people. It doesn't matter how much you think you're right. The reality is you're not better than Jesus and he suffered. So suffering's guaranteed. It's not gonna go away. So the only thing that can change within the suffering is us, our attitude towards it. We have to look at the suffering and say, okay, there's two types of suffering. I'm gonna make this very simple, two categories of suffering. There's necessary suffering and unnecessary suffering. Most of my suffering is unnecessary, right? Most of your suffering is unnecessary because we typically choose to suffer. You're like, what? We make decisions that have consequences that lead to suffering, right? It could be anything. Oh, I made a dumb financial mistake and I'm suffering for it. Well, that was a choice. I chose to sin in a certain way. I chose to, to betray this person and I'm suffering for it. It could be anything. I didn't study for a test, now I'm suffering for it. Most suffering is stuff that we choose, we just hope that it's not gonna happen even though we choose to suffer anyway, right? It's unnecessary suffering. Necessary suffering is the suffering that the Lord allows us to go through so that we can grow and become more like Jesus. One of the crazy things about the gospel is it says that we can relate to Jesus through his suffering and through our suffering. So what changes? It's this, okay, be patient. Be patient, but Place your passive patience upon the hope of Christ who also suffered, who also gives you strength, who is in control of all things and is there for you. Keep your hearts established. Verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's a little bit of a warning. I think from practical standpoint, what James is trying to pull back here, because it feels like he's changed topics, but he hasn't. This is a reminder to say, look, keep the mirror up. I mean, it can push us to some of Jesus' teaching, right, about the plank and the speck and the eye, if you know that passage. That we're to be humble individuals. Stop grumbling about one another because that doesn't help your patience. It doesn't help you look at Jesus. I, since Jesus is always our example, I just want you to think about this for a second. How would you feel if you're, as a Christ follower, if what was recorded that Jesus said while he was on the cross is, I can't believe I have to do this for these people. I mean, come on, guys. Like, you've blown it so much that this is what I have to do? I don't wanna do this, but I'll do it. Grumbling and complaining and pointing fingers. They would change everything. But Jesus had every right to do that. So I think he's saying, look, the right attitude and hope isn't just to point fingers, it isn't to blame people, it isn't to blame circumstances, it isn't to grumble about one another. It isn't to exercise, for those of you who believe that your spiritual gift is criticism. <laughs> it's to say, okay, I'm suffering, this person's suffering, 
how do I place my patience and hope in Christ enough to get me through the suffering and grow in it? It's, it's not, the idea that we grow through suffering, when I say it that way, people don't like it. But when I say it in a different way, you're going to understand it a little bit better. So, uh, Women's World Cup just started. Go USA. Right? Big game on Wednesday. Um, Lionel Messi just came to the United States. Big deal, right? You look at some of these athletes and you're like, how do they achieve the level of play that they get to? Like, what is the difference between the average soccer player that we're gonna be working with kid on the field this week at soccer nights, and what does it take for them to get to the place where they can play at that top level? And if you ask every one of them, they're gonna say in some way, it took a lot of energy and a lot of effort and a lot of dedication and a lot of sacrifice and a lot of suffering. Because just like you, when the brownies come out, they want one, right? And just like you, when we wake up in the morning and we know that we need to go for a run or we know that we need to go to the gym, we make excuses and they wanna make the same ones. And just like you, when I get sore and I don't wanna go back, they have the same ability to make the same excuses, but the difference is they don't. Why? Because they've come to the conclusion that the sacrifice that they're making, the suffering that they're putting themselves through, is ultimately going to cause them to grow to a place that they want to be. We get that. In fact, we don't just get it. We idolize these people. We love these stories. Those Cinderella stories where it's like the underdog came through because they worked so hard. Rudy who played one game, a couple of plays. We're like, he's the greatest hero that's ever lived. Why? Because he worked so hard, he wanted it so bad, he suffered so much and gave up so much for it. So the idea that suffering ultimately can lead to growth is something that we understand. We just don't take it and apply it to our spiritual lives. But here's the crazy thing. When you look at scripture and you look at any single individual that the Lord chose to use, man or woman, you pick, you pick your, your scriptural hero. Typically, this is how the story goes. There's a call from the Lord to do something cool, and then eventually the person says, fine, I'll do it, grumbling and complaining, and then what happens? The Lord goes, eh, picking you up, and you're in the desert for a while. I mean, same thing happened to Jesus, baptism to desert. So for those of you about to get baptized... Um, the desert's not fun. There's nothing great about the desert. I lived in a desert. It's not great. Like, don't buy the hype. It's hot. It's miserable. It's difficult. There's not a lot of food. There's not a lot of water. You sweat all the time. Me metaphorically, the desert spiritually is when the Lord places us in a place that's difficult, that requires us ultimately to fall on our knees and look up and have pure dependency upon him. The purpose of the desert and the suffering that he allows us to go through is so that we remove the pride, 
the mirrors put there and we're willing to say, Lord, I have no choice but to be dependent upon you. It's anti-American. It's instead of a declaration of independence, it's an attempt to make a declaration of dependence. And this is the story throughout every hero in scripture. I'm always frustrated by this one. Paul, he gets, he gets called in this miraculous way, right? And then he disappears for seven years. I'm like, where did he go? Well, I know where he went. Where did he go? The desert. Why? Because the promise that he was given by God will be fulfilled because it was given to him by God. The assignment will be done because it was given to him by God, but he's not the person that can fulfill it yet. One of the things I think that we abhor suffering so much is we want God to give us everything that he has for us right now, right? And not only that, but we want it now and we want it done our way. So Lord, give it to me all now, and what the Lord is saying is you're not ready. You're not ready. And that's just bad parenting, right? Expect your child to be able to handle everything all at once without any preparation whatsoever without letting them fail and teaching them through that. So the Lord, he, this is the crazy thing. He loves us so much that he's willing to put us in the desert so that we become the people he desires to give the blessing to. That's love. It's no different than a coach. I mean, it would not be great coaching for the United States women's soccer coach to say, you know what, from this point forward, no training. We're just gonna go out, you eat whatever you want, you act however you want, you drink whatever you want, and we'll just show up on game day and we'll just roll the dice. That's bad coaching, it's neglect. That person's not gonna have their job very long. It's the coach's job, the father's job, the mother's job the friend's job to say, sometimes you need to go through suffering so that you grow. And what Jesus is constantly telling us is, it's gonna happen all the time. You really wanna grow? I get people all the time looking at me and like, I wanna go deeper, I wanna go deeper, I wanna go deeper, and I'm like, then we're going to the desert. Because that's the only way to go deeper. It's just like any relationship. You wanna go deeper in a relationship? It gets messy quick. Marriage is crazy when you think about it. Two messed up people trying to come together, both bringing in their baggage, it's crazy. I don't know how people do that without the hope of Jesus. When James is describing the suffering we're going and this requirement for us to be patient, it's not insensitive, it's practical. It's aligning our hearts back to who Jesus is longing for us to be. It's saying, stop with the attitude of God, if you won't, I will. Trust me. Lean into me. Believe what I say. I've got this. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. 
Uh, if you don't know your Old Testament, a prophet was an individual who was given a message by the Lord, and then they typically stood up in a large crowd. It was typically at a well. Why a well? Because that's where everybody went every day. You had to have water. Typically, they were built in the middle of a town, or towns would be built around where they found water because everybody had to go there all the time. So remember the story of the woman at the well. Jesus goes to the well. Why? Because there's going to be people there. So a prophet would typically hear a message from the Lord, and then they would stand up in the Old Testament, and they would say, thus says the Lord, and they would deliver this message. Most of the message that they delivered weren't happy. Like, if you know your Bible, it wasn't good news. I mean, if I was living that back then, and a prophet was like, I have a message, I'd be like, ugh. Here we go again. Like, you can picture it. Twitter would go crazy, right? Oh, the prophet, he's got something for us again. And it's gonna be negative. Who's gonna die today? But typically, it was a call for God's people to stop idolizing other things, to put their false worship aside and return to him. And God would send a prophet to stand up and say, you gotta stop. You gotta stop. What you're doing is not good. You need to return back to the one that saved you. You need to turn back to your creator. And so we have people like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos, these guys that would stand up and they would deliver these messages and they were really popular people, right? Because everybody wants to hear bad news all the time. I don't want that job. Sometimes I feel like I have it. But can you imagine like being the person that you know the Lord has provided you truth, you're the one that has to deliver it to an entire city that is falling apart. I mean, this is, this is a tough job. This is, this is not a gig most people went after, right? This is not a good side hustle. And so oftentimes they were rebuked by the people. They were beaten at times, they were neglected, they were ostracized. We have stories of prophets having to living outside the town and then journey in, right? <laughs> so that they didn't get killed. And this is the example he gives. He's saying, look, one of the things that we can be reminded of is that these prophets, they were steadfast regardless of what circumstances they found themselves in. Their hope was in God, so they kept delivering the message. Now we have stories of, of these prophets are human beings. We have moments where they're like, I don't want to deliver that message. But then they still did it. Sometimes it was like somebody like Jonah who the Lord actually had to intervene but the message was delivered. And James is saying, I think this is the biggest thing in this. It's not like the Lord's asking you to do something that he hasn't asked other people to do. You're not alone. There's, there's been people throughout history that the Lord has used and when we've watched them suffer and struggle but we've looked at what James calls their steadfastness. It's encouraging to us. Why? Because their faith was bigger than their circumstance. 
Their patience in continuing to deliver that message wasn't just God going, well, be patient. It was, you have the ability for passive patience because what I've delivered to you is true and there's hope in it because it's coming from the person of hope. But then he introduces this word, they were steadfast, which is, I like better than patience. Because steadfastness is not passive. It's the active version of patience. Patience is passive, you gotta sit back, you gotta wait, you gotta go through it, but steadfastness means that you're doing something. You're active. What were these prophets doing? Constantly praying. Constantly seeking the guidance of the Lord. Constantly looking at what was going on around them and begging the Lord for change. There was this constant focus on who he is and who he and what he's done and what he will do. And here's the thing. There's this balance in a pastor between a confidence to get the job done and a dependency upon the Lord knowing that they can't get the job done. And it's weird. I'm not I mean it's what everybody's supposed to do. But since my world is this, then this is my example. And so oftentimes I will tell someone, you're like, you're not ready. And they're like, well, why? And I'm like, because you think you can do it. Like your steadfastness is in your ability instead of in the one that gave you the ability. Like when you, and, and it's not, and here's the thing, like oftentimes those individuals will succeed by human standards but they'll do it all without God in the picture. And then what ends up happening is this total burnout because they're exhausted because they've depended upon them and not the Lord. Does this sound familiar? This is what happens to everyone. I'll pick on pastors for a moment, right? But this is what happens to everyone. When we put our steadfast, when you say, okay, I need to be patient, and you can even say, okay, I look, I'll be patient in the Lord. But as it's not happening the way you want, you're like, oh, Scripture says I need to be steadfast too, so I'm just gonna keep, I'm gonna keep hoping that it's gonna be me. I'm gonna do it. God, if you won't, I will. I'm gonna work this out. I'm gonna do it. You can sometimes even pull yourself out of the desert and not have learned what the Lord put you there to begin with. And do you know what that means? You're going back. Paul says that we're to be a living sacrifice, and here's the reality of a living sacrifice. The hardest thing about living sacrifice is that you can pull yourself off the altar whenever you want. And we see this all the time. This is kind of how our life in Christ is dictated, right? We step on the altar, we step off the altar. Lord, I'm with you, but not here. So what the prophets demonstrate for us is this steadfastness in the Lord, constantly. Steadfastness in his word. I'm gonna go say that, deliver this message because God said it. What's your steadfastness in? Give us another example. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. I'm not a big fan of the book of Job because it's so real, right? 
If you don't know the story of the book of Job, I'm going to give you a quick synopsis. Satan goes to, Jesus, or goes to the Lord and says, hey, I see that you have this guy who you say worships you really well. I want permission to test him. God gives him permission. And over a very quick period of time, Job, who is a wealthy man and a prominent man in his community, loses everything, including his family and all of his wealth. I mean, it's crazy. Like, all, hey, a messenger comes and is like, hey, all your kids just died. All your wealth is gone. Everything's gone. And then to make it worse, his wife begins to criticize him and saying, well, the reason all this is happening is because you obviously have been sinning. And so this is his wife's quote, which is great, right? Just curse God and die. That's so encouraging. Wives, not a good example. So Job has lost everything. Everything's gone. And then to... Now that the knife's in, to begin turning the knife, all of his friends come and ask him to confess the sin that he's been hiding as to the reason why the Lord would do all of this. And that's not obviously the reason why it's happening. At the end of the story, two things happen. Two major things. It's a long book, you can read it. The Lord comes... And Job, in his steadfastness and refusing to curse the Lord and die, still makes some mistakes. He's still questioning the Lord. Lord, I've lived for you. Why are you doing this? I've been in this situation. Have you ever, Lord, have you not been watching what I've been doing for you? Don't, Don't you know how honored you should be for me to be on your team? You're not holding up your weight. You're not doing your part. Like, why are you allowing this to happen? So God shows up to Job and he's like, through this really cool discourse, he's he's basically like, so who are you to question me, the creator of all things? Like, were you there when I made the rabbit? And I'm paraphrasing. Were you there when I put the seas together? Were you there when I built the whale? Dinosaurs are listed, which is really cool. Were you there when I created the dinosaur? And obviously Job has to say, well, no. And what's God doing? He's reminding Job who's really in control of all things. But then the second thing he does is he restores everything back to Job in a a bigger blessing than he had before. And when we look at what James is encouraging us in this, he says if you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, his heart was, was grounded, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. What's the purpose of the Lord in the story? The purpose of the Lord was that he put Job in the desert to grow him, to teach him, to, to glorify the Lord, and then he restores him. And I don't have, we don't have the discourse of how Job lived from that point forward, but my based on my own experience and based on your experience, when you've been in such disarray for so long and the Lord finally steps in, the praise and the worship and the honor and the glory that you give him and that story that you tell over and over and over is so valuable. 
In fact, that story, oftentimes, of your suffering and his faith through it becomes such a big part of your testimony that it helps others who are going through similar situations. And I would imagine that's what Job's life was. He ends this passage by saying, the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful which is displayed at the end of Job's story, but this is the thing. Like, We live in a sin-cursed world. We live in sin-cursed bodies. There's the hope of the gospel, but we also have the character of the Lord who is compassionate and merciful. He cares. He doesn't just care about his collective universal church. He cares about you as an individual. He cares enough that he created you to be who you are. He cares enough to provide the resources that you need. He cares enough to say, I sent my son Jesus to die for you. He cares enough to say, I'm I'm providing you hope in a world that you've utterly destroyed. He cares enough to say, I'm willing to take you through these growth patterns of suffering and give you the ability to be patient and steadfast if your eyes are on Christ. He's compassionate enough that he can handle your grumbling and your complaining. He's compassionate enough that he can handle my anger. See, I think if we understood that better, things would be different. I think... I think, I remember the story, I I was, Christy and I were young and we were trying to figure out who Jesus was and how to apply this and so on and so forth and this lady stood up once in a class I was in and she's like, Jesus is my best friend. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. Jesus is your best friend? I remember looking at Christy and going, that's because she doesn't have any friends. Because the only people that say that are the ones that don't have friends, right? And then the Lord put us in the desert. And I remember a year and a half later, standing up in the room and saying, Jesus is my best friend. (laughs) And I looked at Christy and she starts laughing and I'm looking around the room for the person that was me. Right? Because that's the person I want to connect with so they can understand because I didn't understand. When we say Jesus is our best friend, you take everything to your best friend. You don't just take the big stuff. You take the little things. You, you know that you're, they're a friend of yours because they are compassionate for you and they are loving to you and they will tell you the truth. It's this combination, right? Man, you love me enough that you'll tell me and you when I'm wrong, you'll still listen. (laughs) That's who God is. He can handle it, he's bigger than you. He's bigger than your problems. He's bigger than your doubts and your fears and your anger. He's compassionate, he loves you. I think if the church could just remember that, it would help us get through these desert moments a whole lot better. So what do we do with this? 
If you're here today and everything that I've said today is foreign but interesting, you're like, huh, maybe you came in and went, that's not what I was expecting. This is my, my suggestion to you. Your story, like all of us in here, is you've been placing your patience, your steadfastness, your hope, your trust, your faith in you and things of this world and they're constantly failing you and you're tired. And some of you may have wandered in here because you said, I don't know what this is, but I need something. So I love you enough to tell you this, that something is Jesus. And there's nothing else in this world that will provide you the ability to have hope that won't fail you, nothing. It's Jesus or you continue the cycle that you've been living. And if you don't believe me, you can keep trying but then we call that foolishness because the same result will happen. So this is my suggestion. You're like, man, I want to know more about Jesus. I, I, want, I have questions, so here's, here's what you can do. You can come talk to me if you like. But my suggestion would be you turn to the person next to you and you say, hey, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, can we get some coffee? I got some questions. Talk to somebody. Ask the questions. But don't leave here the same. There's nothing that I've said that should encourage you to leave going, I can do it, because you can't. But Jesus can. For the church, if you're here today and you say, I am a Christ follower, I, I follow Jesus, I know that he's my savior, I profess faith in the gospel and Jesus alone, and that's all, that's all great. But how's your patience? What's your steadfastness grounded in? How's the desert going? That, that hope and trust and faith that you put into the gospel from the very beginning is not supposed to fade, it's supposed to get fanned and turn into fire even in the moments of difficulty. In fact, in those moments of difficulty, sometimes that's when our faith can actually be at its height. I, I, I turned this upside down on some people I was discipling not too long ago, and I, I've done this in the past. There's some people that have benefited from, from this type of thinking, but when you get to the place where you realize that it's the desert that draws you closer to Jesus if you do this, you'll find yourself as a disciple of Christ actually praying for the desert. That's anti-American. Because we pray for comfort. Comfort's the enemy of Christianity. When's the last time, Christ follower, you prayed for the Lord to put you in the desert because you know you need to grow? This is that mirror moment, right? And I'll be honest, it's easier to say than do. But in Christ, you can do it.
but you can't do it without him. So I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing here. I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know what response needs to be had. I would say that some of you may be convicted enough to say, you know what I need to do? I need to spend some time in repentance. Some things I've been doing wrong, and I just need to confess that to the Lord. Some of you just need to go, Lord, I'm going through the desert, and you are sustaining me, and I'm giving you the glory, and you need to celebrate with everything in you. But wherever you are on that spectrum, I would say, evaluate it, process it, and we're gonna give you a minute to do that. So the ladies are gonna come up, and we're gonna sing another song, and every week here at Church at the Well, we participate in communion, so there's communion elements set up here and here. You do not have to be a member of Church at the Well to participate in communion, but please know Jesus. If you are here today and you don't know Christ, I'm just gonna ask, don't take communion because I don't want you leaving here with a false hope. Religion is not the hope, Jesus is. And what communion represents is what Jesus did for those who partake in it. So it's not really gonna mean anything to you if you don't know Christ. But as we sing, the elements are here, and we're reminded as we partake in communion that the only change that can occur inside any human being must take place at the foot of the cross. So whether you're taking communion today because you're celebrating what the Lord's doing in you, whether you're taking communion today because you're saying, Lord, I know that I need change and I need to repent and I have been far from you. I've been doing this on my own. My steadfastness has been in my own strength. My patience has been not patient. I'm not putting trust in you in these areas. Then we know that the answer is at the foot of the cross. So this is your time. Do with it as you see fit. I'm gonna pray. We'll sing. God, thank you for your word. Lord, it's hard but you know that. It's hard to be patient. It's hard to be steadfast. But Lord, we're grateful that you give us the person of Jesus. I want to pray for anyone in this room right now who has never come to faith in Christ. Lord, I ask right now you would regenerate them. You'd give them, remove that heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, or give them faith. And give them boldness and courage to ask questions. Lord, please don't let anyone leave here today without knowing you. For your church, Lord, forgive us. Remind us that you are always with us, that you're compassionate and you're merciful. Lord, remind us that you're always with us in the desert. Help us to be patient and steadfast, but Lord, may that hope be placed in Christ and nothing else. And then Lord, would you allow us the privilege of representing that to others? that as others see us being patient and steadfast in Christ, that they would be attractive to them. 
Lord, whatever you're doing in here in these hearts, I just pray that as you promise, you will finish that work. So we give this time to you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your love. Speak to us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.